and welcome to Just Plain Sense, the Equality and Diversity Podcast. I'm Christine Burns. What do you think about minority groups like transgender people? And, unless you know someone in person, have you ever questioned where that information comes from? Did you get what you think you know from friends in the office or in the pub? Or was it from something that you and they learned from the media? The issue of media representation is nothing new. The suffragettes a hundred years ago were just as aware of how they were portrayed by newspapers then as feminists speaking and writing in the 1970s. Indeed, the term suffragette is said to have been coined by the Daily Mail in 1906. Study the history and you'll find that the issue of media representation has been of concern to most minorities engaged in political struggles for equal rights. Indeed, it's hard to miss the change in the way that lesbian and gay people's place in the media has changed in the last couple of decades. But which comes first? Does such change reflect the underlying social trend? Is it a mark of acceptance into the mainstream? Or is it the other way around? Is it necessary for minority activists to conquer their own PR challenge and produce the kind of reporting and representation which facilitates their acceptance? With me today is someone who I'm hoping can shed some light. Juliet Jakes is a transsexual woman. She's come to notice through writing a series of articles serialised by The Guardian, following and discussing her gender transition. Juliet, welcome to Just Plain Sense. We'll come on to your Guardian column in a bit, but could I ask you first to describe a little bit about your background? You're in you're in your late twenties, and you grew up in Redhill in Surrey. Is that right? That's true. Yeah, I grew up in well Redhill in uh, and then Hawley in Surrey, which is just down the road. And um, so I grew up there. Went to college in Horsham, and then to the University of Manchester, where I did a degree in history between two thousand and two thousand and three. Uh, on graduating, I moved to Brighton, where a lot of my old friends had gone. Uh, took a master's degree in literature and visual culture at the University of Sussex from 2003 to 2005 um, and then published my dissertation on the English novelist Rainer Heppenstall through the Dorky Archive Press two years later. been working in a number of um, clerical jobs during that time uh, until I came to the point of transition in 2009. Just going back to uh, being a child, what what are your recollections of trans people in the media? You know, when you were growing up, did those did those affect you? Um, very much so. I mean, I grew up in a Daily Mail household, so I saw a lot of the worst extremes of uh, representation of trans people in the media. I mean, the Mail's coverage typically tended towards um, stories of transsexual women. It was never transsexual men. Transsexual women usually. Um, some story of some obsequious demands they were making of the state. And so there was a, a kind of frequent portrayal of transsexual people as, you know, these kind of freaks, really, who were just making these demands of, of the government in order to kind of further some sort of strange agenda that the, the paper took great pride in not understanding. Without face-to-face contact with transsexual people, I, I think a lot of people did internalise those stereotypes and um, perpetuate them. Is it just a question of factual accuracy? Um, I don't think it's just factual accuracy. I mean, in some in some cases, of course, these portrayals were kind of accurate. Um, but in other cases, they weren't. And they weren't fair and they weren't representative of a whole group of people. 
Are you, um, are you saying perhaps that journalists are being selective in the, the, the people they, they choose to portray? Well, very much so. They have a kind of social ideological agenda uh, and they select stories to fit that. Um, and the the facts of the individual stories may have, you know, a modicum of truth in them. But um, but like I say, they, they, they wouldn't allow a, a counterbalance. That was the crucial point, was that there was no no argument against this stereotype allowed anywhere in the media as far as I could see when I was growing up. So in, in part it's it's who does the telling? Very much so. Who's in control of of these narratives? Who creates these narratives? Who perpetuates them? And who prevents uh, arguments against them? And certainly in the 90s, you know, when I, when I was growing up, you started to see some more prominent um, gay men and lesbian women in the media um, who were a real inspiration to me and their inspiration to other kind of lesbian, gay and bisexual people and I think some trans people during that time. There weren't an awful lot of prominent trans people. There were there were some prominent drag queens. Now the the, the British drag queens, Lily Savage and people like that, were generally quite self deprecating. And there was a kind of contract there which was, you know, you laugh at us and we'll laugh at you. Um, is, is that about perhaps people making themselves less threatening by, by, by doing the laughing first? I think very much so. And I think the media wanted to, was quite happy to indulge people who were less threatening. And then there were these transsexual people who were just portrayed as these kind of freaks who were doing something very strange. Yes. I mean, I'm going to my own experience. I, I often tell about growing up in the 1960s and my reference point was getting old enough to read the Sunday newspapers and reading about April Ashley and the way that she was portrayed told me something very frightening about my feelings. Well I mean it's interesting you mention April Ashley because when I was growing up in the 90s you know obviously I was the child of uh, parents who grew up in the 60s so they were familiar with April Ashley but nobody else. Um and it still seemed that April Ashley at that point was was the only really prominent British transsexual person and allowed to tell her own story to a point. Um, and thinking back now, it just seems very strange that in the 30 years, well, 20 or 30 year period that covered. Now, that, that, that's interesting, though. You, you, you talk, we talk about April Ashley because it ostensibly... Yeah, she's quite a positive figure. She's she's always been very beautiful. She's been very positive, very much in control of her life, other than where you know, things have been taken away from her. So you'd think that that was something that you could build on very positively. Well, yeah, I mean, I and a lot of other trans people I know found April Ashley an absolute inspiration. Uh, I saw her talk about her life at the South Bank Centre a year or two ago and just found her utterly captivating... And like you say, I mean, it is very strange that nobody seemed to build on that that kind of media progress that she made. OK, let, let's come back to to talk about the, the, the media's role then, because we've, we've talked a lot about newspapers there, but that's not the only side of the media. There's, there's news, there's uh, television, radio, documentaries, there's books. You know, is it the same in all of those cases? Well... I think across all of those cases, there were unsympathetic portrayals and there were sympathetic portrayals. And often the unsympathetic portrayals were kind of easier to dismiss because, you know, if you saw them in a right-wing tabloid or on a television station or programme that was noted for having a fairly kind of um, reactionary agenda, then it was quite easy to dismiss that accordingly and think, well, there are plenty of people out there who are more accepting. 
Where it became more complicated was going to films and documentaries and newspaper articles that were ostensibly sympathetic but were not produced by transgender or transsexual people. And so you had people with no lived experience of being transgendered kind of controlling the agenda as well. And um, that wasn't always a bad thing, but there were certain phrases and methods of portrayal that became cliches. Obviously, the trapped in the wrong body is, you know, is something that I just saw endlessly on kind of sympathetic articles on trans people. Um and, it, and that's used as a straw man as well, isn't it? Because trans people are then beaten over the head to say that's too simplistic. But I'm, I'm not actually sure that it's trans people who actually originally used that that meme. I, I'm i not sure. I mean, I, th- I think it dates back to, you know, the 40s or the 50s when people such as Christine Jorgensen and Michael Dillon were just seen as sort of so uh, beyond the scale of comprehension that, you know, this kind of rather dramatic trapped in the wrong body narrative kind of grew up as, as you know a kind of shorthand for just the level of pain and frustration that they'd experienced that, that you, you're right there i think shorthand because because media all look for simple ways of telling a story well yeah i mean you you still see it now the independent ran a piece recently about a transsexual woman and the headline said i was trapped in the wrong body and i, I read it and thought this could have been written 40 years ago I think, you know, if they're going to write a thousand words on a, a transsexual person's whole life experience, then then you need a shorthand. And, you know, I, I don't think there's... Well, I mean, I'm going to quote Napoleon here, who said, never ascribe malice where, you, you know, incompetence explains. And I think it's just a lack of knowledge uh, on the part of these interviewers and journalists of a lack of understanding of the need to unpack these kind of cliches rather than just repeat them. So how do you think it is that they get that so wrong? I mean, is it is it deliberate on their part or is it ignorance? Are they, they simply feeding off what their predecessors have done? Well, no, as, as I as I just said, I, I think it's it's more... I mean, you know, there, there is some malice, certainly, and it's quite easy to, to spot when a reporter is deliberately, uh, say, misgendering someone using the wrong pronouns uh, or pursuing a hostile agenda. I think for the most part, it is just a lack of knowledge. And again, because a lot of people don't know a trans person and they've only um, processed this issue through the media, I think they just fall into certain kind of traps that have been laid by by the more hostile people of, you know, focusing on our appearance rather than our kind of essence, of setting us up as kind of deceivers rather than people who are expressing what we feel our, our kind of gendered essence is to be of kind of, you know, spraying around uh, people's former names to add a sense of kind of drama when that's not always particularly helpful. And so, yeah, like I said, I think people write with the best will in the world, but um, they, they've they just had no guidance on how to how to cover trans people and issues. You, you've touched already on this, this idea that, the, that, that trans people haven't been part of the process, except perhaps in, in writing autobiography. Is is that? Do you think then the the, the part of the process, you know, the the reason why it goes wrong? Um, I think so. Yeah, I think you know the lack of involvement in people being allowed to tell their own stories from any kind of um, minority group, and you've seen this throughout history with different groups of people, um, where you know there is a stereotype of a certain type of person. And then somebody from that group will say, well, no, actually, there are historical reasons why this stereotype has evolved and there are contemporary reasons why it's not particularly accurate or helpful. Um, I mean, you you saw it with lesbian and gay people, in particularly in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. 
and you saw the powers of reaction in the 80s as the sort of first wave of, of gay and lesbian people kind of explained their sexualities and their kind of cultural position that arose from those sexualities. And then obviously with the onset of AIDS in the early 80s, you know, that took a real knock back. And then there was a change in the way lesbian and gay people represented themselves and in their kind of cultures. Mm. Um, and I think we're seeing the same with trans people now. I think in the 90s, there was a real push for trans people to get involved with the media, but that didn't filter through to small town Surrey, for example. Um, and obviously that culminated in some of the kind of gains with the Gender Recognition Act in 2004, I think in Britain, that was more focused on um, the law around trans people. And we touched on that with April Ashley already. Mm. And then I think the next step has been to get trans people more involved in media representation. Yeah. Now, I know one of the things that's happened in that time, of course, is that where trans people haven't been able to tell, you know, to, to explore their their true selves through the through the mainstream media is that we've created our own media we've we've created with uh, before blogs there were websites there were email lists there were lots of ways for people to to spread consciousness both personal and political but that means now that when the media is beginning to wake up and start to show an interest in trans people that that perhaps the trans community is a lot further down the, the, the road with that conversation than, 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 than the mainstream media. Do you think that creates a problem then? Well, I think it does. I mean, you know, in over the last decade, when I was kind of old enough, savvy enough and well-connected enough to find these kind of more underground trans literary and media spaces through fanzines, through academic essays, things that aren't in the mainstream, I and like-minded people were able to very strongly understand the current thinking in trans kind of politics in trans culture and um i think a lot of people have no awareness of this because you know if you're not part of a minority group yourself then you are less likely to spend large amounts of time delving into this literature and these 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 trans writers and filmmakers uh, and even musicians have been kept so far out of kind of more mainstream media spaces uh, that it's not been brought to anyone who wouldn't have otherwise been looking for it so yeah I think that sort of explains why there is this kind of gap and the amount of time which this gap has gone on because trans people have appeared in the media but as I say as objects rather than as subjects Mm -hmm. and I think the amount of time in which that's happened has made um, the representation of trans people terrifying for kind of journalists and editors particularly now we live in the internet age and it's very quick and very easy for large numbers of trans people um, if they see a media representation that they feel is unfair or or just badly expressed you know they can bombard journalists and editors with you know very angry emails and phone calls saying look this is appalling uh which was the case i had with the guardian you know quite recently after the um after the column had started, I, the Guardian ran a piece about a transsexual Scrabble uh, champion, Mickey Nicholson, and they they took their story from the Press Association's release, which misgendered Mickey throughout. And so the Guardian's article used he, I think, six times, and they got some very angry emails about that. And so I got a, a call from somebody at the Guardian saying, look, can you advise us on this? And I was, you know, quite surprised at how how difficult they'd found it and how 
how much they were struggling to understand how they should be portraying these people. And I said, well, look, if somebody's using a female pronoun and is wearing female clothes uh, and using a female name, then, then use a female pronoun. It's It surprised me. Because it's what we usually do for everybody we meet in the street, well, isn't exactly, it? We don't we do inquire on their genitals before, before deciding what to call them. Well, completely. And, um, you know, I... I wonder if the kind of talk show hosts who focus on these kind of things when they meet transsexual people do that whenever they meet anybody else. Um, like I said, I was flabbergasted at how simple it seemed to me and how difficult it seemed to, to them. But, but I, I can all also understand the, the impatience that, that trans people express in those circumstances because we've had those conversations over years. We've had lots of debate about what people should be called, what the rules are. Lots of very interesting debate about understanding how to 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 read what we are. Uh, so the question is, I suppose, we've got to go through this sort of trans one hundred and one educational process. How long is it reasonable to do that? Well, the thing is, I don't know if it will ever stop, um, and you know, maybe maybe it shouldn't. I mean, maybe we'll get to the point where it can, and that would be wonderful. But I think because lesbian and gay people aren't asked to explain themselves in those ways. No, um, I think one of the reasons for that is that sexuality is a less all-encompassing thing than gender. Um, You know, if lesbian and gay people have generally taken the kind of route that we're, you know, we're like you, we just sleep with people of the same sex as us. Um, And I mean, it's taken a staggeringly long time for that startlingly simple kind of premise to really kind of hit home. Uh, and obviously it still hasn't in a lot of places and i mean i think with lesbian and gay people a lot of what people are scared of is not so much the sexuality itself but the culture around it which they don't really understand there's this you know for a long time there's been this kind of lesbian and gay subcultures that people are sort of simultaneously fascinated and terrified by and i think the same with transsexualism i think people don't find it quite so hard to understand the idea of, you know, I was trapped in the wrong body, which I think is why it's become repeated so often. Mm-hmm. But the the actual, the, the lengthy medical process which we undergo in order to align our bodies with our kind of essences, um, they're much more scared of. And that brings us on now to your, your column in The Guardian, because you're, you're telling your story week after week is actually addressing that. So first... Yeah, how did that column come about? Well, it wasn't my idea actually. It was a, a good friend of mine suggested it to me. My my friend Joe Stretch, who was who was at university with me, and uh, he's a he's a writer. He's published a couple of novels, and um, you know we've kind of supported each other throughout our writing careers. And when I started transitioning shortly after, Joe just said, "Look, you should propose a blog to the Guardian. They'll bite your hand off." I managed to get in contact with uh, Rachel Dixon, who was the acting life and style editor, who really liked the idea. And then between Rachel and I, we decided that I would write 3,000 word pieces that gave my background in the first, my kind of journey through transgender subcultures in the second, which led me to the point of transition. And then this kind of chaotic first kind of couple of weeks in transition to kind of set up the blog. I mean, what strikes me as important about that writing of yours is is the way you combine what I'd call the, the very personal account with a political and an analytical as well. The the personal account in real time is a, is a brave thing for a writer to do, though. Do you ever think twice, should I write about this? Absolutely. Um, 
my kind of rule is anything that's just purely to do with me i i impose no limits on myself um you know the the usefulness of laying bare my kind of relationship with mental health problems or my own gender dysphoria in and of itself um you know far outweighs the sort of you know the potential anxieties i have over putting myself on the line uh, where it became more difficult was writing in particular about my family and about charing cross um and writing about charing cross was difficult for two reasons firstly because it has a very complicated history and a very tense relationship with the trans community at times so i worried you know what can i say here firstly you know how will i know that it's representative of the clinic's history and secondly will i libel anyone so that was my first concern with charing cross and my second obviously was the worry of prejudicing my own treatment i mean there's no way i can afford to go private in my treatment uh and charing cross is my local gender identity clinic and if i'd alienated them at any point during the process then the whole thing falls apart now the counterpoint to that of course is that it's probably awkward for charing cross as well because you know they don't want to alienate this writer who's blogging her gender reassignment (laughs) so it becomes quite a complicated contract on both sides in which neither wants to tread on the other's toes too much so maybe my treatment at charing cross has been better because i'm documenting it but also you know maybe i've been more careful about charing cross than i'd be about other institutions that I I did notice that in your writing at one point, saying one of your uh, clinicians had said, you know, is this going to end up in the blog? Well, I I mean, this is the worry about the blog as a whole, that it might end up being some kind of weird postmodern nightmare. You know, this is a strange metafictional thing where um, my transition itself is changed by the blog. And so it becomes harder to blog a kind of honest and uh, representative in particular kind of... um, no, I can still be honest, but a representative um, picture of the NHS pathway for people uh, because it's changed by by the act of writing about it. Um, yeah. Of course, one one important aspect of the blog is that it's not just you writing as you might do in, in a book or making a documentary. There's the interactivity of the, the, the comments from readers as well. And, and some of that's, that's, that's pretty nasty and pretty, pretty hard sometimes, particularly perhaps if you're writing personally. Um, I've not actually had too much of a problem with the comments. I was actually asked the day before before the blog ran by Rachel if I wanted the comments to be enabled and I said yes because I thought no it would be inexcusable to put this blog up and then not allow any kind of discourse and the op- and what that's done is just opened up a space for a lot of other trans people to share their experiences for a lot of people who know trans people to share their experiences which I think is even more important and, and I think perhaps some of the negativity is part of the education as well, because in some ways it, it validates some of the things that you say as well, because people can get a taste. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, the negativity has been very, very helpful in a way. I mean, um, the, the the second, the first comment on the first blog said, look, this is really wonderful to see this in the garden. It's about time. The second comment just said something <laughs> along the lines of, oh, this is political correctness gone mad. I might try being a transvestite and see if the garden will give me a comment. And it was removed fairly sharpish. In fact, I didn't see it. I only saw it paraphrased. Uh, but then there were several comments after saying, I'm really glad that comment's been removed. Uh, you're an idiot. And... Um, that was that was quite heartening in itself it very quickly built a kind of community feel and it set a very good precedent for the comments which 
I think on the whole, have actually been far more positive than negative. Mm. A lot of the negative, I mean, the moderators have been very sensitive and have very quickly removed a lot of things. But I think what's happened is it's created a space for trans people and our friends to put across positive representations of their own life experiences, talk about the difficulties they've suffered at different points in time as well, not just now. And you do find the more neg- negative commenters are actually, um, they're chased away pretty quickly. And I don't have to engage on my own. I don't feel I'm fighting a battle on my own with the kind of trolls and with the reactionaries because there are plenty of other people who jump in there and do it for me. And that's been wonderful. And I think people are finally getting bored of having the same arguments and then just ignoring i mean it was right i mean the the funniest one i think was on part 12 and um after about 230 comments which you know mostly discussed again whether or not gender reassignment should be funded on the nhs which is you know come up nearly every week somebody just posted a comment saying you know the question nobody's asking here is should this be funded on the nhs and (laughs) i just couldn't stop laughing i thought yeah when is somebody going to talk about this it's not been discussed in any of the previous columns to my recollection um i hope someone starts discussing immigration on the front page of the national newspaper soon as well it's a similar similar kind of feel to, to that kind of political correctness gone mad kind of crowd who see themselves as the kind of radical voice of what's not allowed to be said when actually it's what's being said all the time forever yeah so so what comes next i mean is the guardian series open-ended or do you have an end in mind well obviously the guardian series has a fairly logical conclusion and um as far as i can tell um the newspaper intend to see the series through to that conclusion which i think will be sometime during the next year and then afterwards is is it a, a book a documentary or what uh well there's no more factual documentation of my own experiences planned and I think I've actually said everything I want to say in the columns. I mean, by the time the columns finishes by the time the column finishes, um, by my estimation I'll have written about thirty thousand words, which, you know, is a short book in itself. Um and I mean, you know, I'm twenty nine at the moment, you know, I I'm rather young to be writing my memoirs as it is, and you know, I, I don't feel the need to expand the columns into a book that purely covers the same process. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do have a book in mind on the uh, the football player, Justin Fashionu. Um, and I mean, I have had approaches from publishers and television companies about more fictional um, works on the trans community. And I, I think this is a very good thing to do. I think, you know, People are slightly bored of autobiographies and Mm -hmm. documentaries on trans people that, like I said, tend to fall into the same old cliches. And I think big things for the gay and lesbian communities were programs such as Queer as Folk and The L Word, which appeared to be kind of colourful, exciting. And they're moving on. And moving on, moving on from the more kind of self-pitying kind of pushing against victimisation that came in the kind of earlier documentaries and biographies and give a much more kind of positive, colourful representation of these subcultures with really good narratives and characters that people get excited about. What what kind of changes would you like to see occur in the media then overall? Um, well, I'd like there to be more trans people writing regularly on different subjects, both on trans subjects and on other subjects. Um, I mean, I think it would be good if the point of interest for me further down the line would not be that I'm transgender, but, you know, my other interests and we'll see what happens there. And I think it would be good if there are a number of trans people with different kind of social and political perspectives um, in the same way that, you know, you have, say, Simon Fanshawe, Peter Tatchell, Ben Summerskill, 
uh, to name just three people, uh, prominent gay male kind of writers and activists with very different approaches. And um, I think it will be a real sign of progress when we have trans people arguing with each other in the national media. I've been talking to writer Juliet Jakes. And if people want to catch up on your writing in The Guardian, where will they find that? Uh, it's in the Life and Style section. Um, it's published once a fortnight on a Wednesday. Uh, the whole archive is online. You can search for a transgender journey on the Guardian site and you'll find it there. And if you've got a pencil and paper handy, it's www.guardian.co.uk forward slash life and style forward slash series forward slash transgender hyphen journey. I'm sure you've got all that down in one go. And that, as usual, brings us to the end of another episode of Just Plain Sense. If you'd like to hear more, then the place to go is our website, podcast.plain-sense.co.uk. Take a look at the subscription options there as well, so you'll never miss subsequent shows. Well, join us again soon for another programme on a topic relating to equality and diversity. For now, though, it's goodbye and thank you for listening. Just Plain Sense is a Plain Sense Limited production. Mm-hmm.